Greetings, everyone, and welcome to the Cool Hand Grace podcast. Each week, we explore a biblical passage or topic, offering some insight and application and seeking to point us to hope and direction for our lives. We also have interactive questions for each podcast, for individual reflection or for small groups. I'm Pastor Kurt Witzig, and on behalf of the College Ministry at Duluth Bible Church, welcome. Today, on the Cool Hand Grace podcast, we are going to talk about grief and grieving, and about resentment and bitterness, and if we can see any relief in sight. The passage we want to touch on today is found in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30 through 32. And this passage touches on several highly personal and applicable subjects, namely grief and bitterness. These are two things that every one of us have grappled with and I'm sure have been overcome by at various times. So let's see how the Word of God will give us solid perspective on the first one, grief, and Lord willing, some real hope of helping us move beyond the second one, bitterness. And our passage again, as I said, is Ephesians 4, 30, verse 32, and here we will read, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. And be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. Well, here's our context as we think of Ephesians 4. The direct context really begins back in verse 25, where we'll see from verse 25 to 32 a string of six um, imperatives that Paul is going to give after laying down uh, some doctrinal truths and things of that nature in Ephesians chapters 1 through 3. But what we see back in Ephesians 4, 17, we're told not to walk as the unsaved walk because we have not so learned Christ. And then a few verses later, we're given a solid reminder of each believer's position in Christ, and from that, how we can put off the old man and put on the new man while being renewed in the spirit of our mind. And then in verse 25, we begin the string of six imperatives. The first one is speak the truth with your neighbor, because we are members of one another, and then be angry and sin not, uh, and not let the sun go down on your wrath. And Third, Don't steal, but rather labor with your hands. And then don't let corrupt words proceed from out of your mouth, but instead um, allow to proceed from out of your mouth what is good and what is edifying. uh, The fifth uh, imperative is don't grieve the Holy Spirit in whom you are sealed until the day of redemption. And finally, the sixth imperative, let all bitterness, etc. be put away from you and be kind and tenderhearted instead. So, The imperative, don't grieve the Holy Spirit, do not grieve the Holy Spirit, is what we want to start with and look at. And the first question we want to ask is, well, just what is grief? And, you know, defined, it's pretty straightforward. Grief means to experience sadness or to have deep sorrow, uh, usually connected to a loss. It's an emotion, grief is, 
and it's usually, again, associated with a death or a loss. So it's really an emotional reaction to loss. And then we want to ask the question, well, is it okay to grieve? Well, clearly here the Holy Spirit grieves, and he is God, so it must be okay. We know from the life of Jesus and, and at the wake of Lazarus that Jesus wept and experienced this grief and had this e- emotional grief in response to it. We know from Isaiah 53, verse 3 and 4, that Jesus is referred to as a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Surely he has borne our griefs. So you might even ask, it seems like even almost a foolish question, doesn't it? Is it okay to grieve? But we see that, of course, it is. There are several qualifications that sometimes get connected to grief. Sometimes we think it's okay to grieve, but we should not grieve as the unsaved. But implied in that is that, therefore, then our, our grief is somewhat less and somewhat less intense and uh, should be much shorter or something like that. We might kind of uh, take that baggage on. Uh, it does say, 1 Thessalonians 4.13, we should not sorrow as others who have no hope, as the, as the Gentiles, the unsaved. How do we distinguish that, the two sorrows then? Well, you know, if the others who have no hope, does it mean that their their sorrow is an illegitimate grief? Their grief is somehow wrong? Boy, I wouldn't want to have to tell that to even, let's say, a lost person who has recently lost someone, let's say, in the coronavirus uh, situation where a loved one died alone in a hospital. You mean that grief isn't valid or somehow it's wrong? So obviously that grief is very valid, but they they don't have hope. And hope to the lost, you know, it's there. They, they hope they're going to see that person again, or they hope that uh, that person will be smiling at them from heaven. But the difference is, is they don't know. They have hope. It's just that. I hope so, but I don't know. I'm not sure. And that's what the Word of God does and the Gospel does, is when we understand God's plan of salvation, then we have certainty. So for the unbeliever, the emotion is real, the grief is real, their hope, though, is not backed up with certainty, so comparatively, it's really not hope at all. But for the believer in Christ, they can see hope then, as the Bible defines it, really, as confident expectation, a certainty. The believer knows for sure that they have eternal life and are going to spend eternity with Jesus Christ, the lover of their soul. And and we can know that if loved ones are saved, we can grieve for them, but without the, 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 the wondering where did they go or what's really going to happen. So now, the fact that we know for sure that they're in eternity with Jesus in heaven, that does not erase, though, all the emotion or sorrow or grief that we may have as believers. We still miss that person. We still have sorrow about the loss, and we have emotional sadness, and we know we will see them again. But certainly, it's okay to grieve and to have sorrow. It's a national process, a natural process. The emotion is real and vivid. How long can we grieve? Maybe that's the problem. Maybe we should only grieve for a little bit. Well, nowhere does the Bible give time limits that I'm aware of. Okay, uh, you know, there's periods of grief. It's okay to not have maybe as long a period of grief. Everyone's going to grieve in their own way. Everyone's going to have this process that unfolds. How long does the Holy Spirit grieve? When do we see that he just gets over it? So I don't think that's the, uh, the question is, do you grieve as long as that emotion is there and you're working your way through that process? 
Um, another question we might have that might ca- you know that might cause us to have some confusion about grief is is it's not a question, but it's more this assertion that grief is an emotion, and emotions should never run us nor dominate us. So you need to reason your way out of grief eventually, and have like managing and control it. I mean, because you know they're in heaven, and you know that you're going to see them again, and so come on. Well. They then we could even kind of hint and say something like, you know, that sorrow you're having, this grief you're having, since, you know, it's, it's selfish. You're going to miss them. You will miss them. And you are sad. And this is about you. If you think principally, um, then this emotion should be short-lived and we should be able to move on and everything should be fine and let's get moving. Well, it is an emotion and it's emotion, this grief emotion is related to love. We love is this relational, a love is a relational attachment you know, I was thinking of a story I remember reading uh, sometime back of a Buddhist boy who, who went away to, uh, as a young man to become a monk. And after years of training and becoming a monk, he comes back, um, hardly recognizable, years later, into this hometown. And he actually sees his mother, uh, you know, in the market and even briefly converses with her, but he doesn't identify himself and she does not recognize him as her son. And then he leaves and he's gone again for years. And she finds out a little later that that man was her son, and she's so happy because she could see that he had advanced spiritually beyond the need for that relationship, which is really one of the goals of Buddhism, is to rise above all such temporal connections and attachments. So they can apply their theological reason to that and say, light of their theology, you overcome these earthly attachments and emotions, and you, you live in a state of neutralness above all that. Well, I wonder sometimes as Christians, in light of this grief idea, are we not trying to do the same thing? I mean, you know, really, this person that you're grieving, they're in a good place, now get over it. I mean, you'll see them again. Well, what about love that you have and memories of them and you're missing them? And who says to have that and be thinking upon that is bad? You know, of course, like any emotion, grief can overwhelm you and can become a problem. Um, Even then, though, if you're being overwhelmed and paralyzed by grief, is the solution your managing of it? What would uh, cure someone who's paralyzed by grief or overcome by it? Words of rebuke. Tell them, it's logical, think through this. Are we not really becoming like Job's friends? So these can just become examples of how we sometimes can be scrubbing grace right out of our practice. So yes, friends, it is okay to grieve. And let's learn, even as fellow Christians, to let people grieve and support them while they are, and let that grieving process, which is not a cookie cutter for everyone same, but let that process work itself out and show empathy and not judgment. Well, this brings us to a question then, as we think that the Holy Spirit, who has personality as God, that he is grieving, how is he grieved? Well, we has sorrow, he has sadness. We can clearly see in the context it's related to our sin. The verses right before verse 30 and verse 31 and 32, listing different sins in this, uh, this, that, that bring on this sorrow. So the real important question to really ask, though, is why? Why is the Holy Spirit grieved? Now, first, a few quick reasons why we can know for why he's not grieved. You know, it does say he is the Holy Spirit, so maybe it's because he's holy and he just hates sin. Um, It's even emphatic in the Greek text, it's do not grieve the Spirit, the Holy of God. But what emotion would a thrice holy God have toward our rebellion and sin? It would be wrath, indignation, a holy anger, and we know God has all of that. 
But it has all been vanquished. It has all been poured out on Jesus Christ as he hung on the cross in our place. And he cried out, it is finished, meaning paid in full. And we know that God is propitiated. His judgment is satisfied. And that judicial issue of sin and God's wrath and anger has been settled. God has has vanquished his wrath and poured it out on Christ. And so sins are paid for, even future ones. God's justice is met and satisfied. So the Holy Spirit is not grieved in a judicial sense because of the sin. And sometimes we might think, well, maybe he's grieved because his plans and his purposes are frustrated. Um, But we know that humans could never accomplish this in the ultimate sense, prevent the the Holy Spirit's plans or be frustrated. Uh, You know, his will will be done. So why is he grieved? Well, Maybe here's a reason why. One is, is that he, he, this puts a pause on what he wants to do inside of us. There's a temporary pause as he wants to fill the believer with Jesus Christ and the knowledge of him so that in turn the Spirit of God wants to glorify Christ and wants Christ to be magnified in us. And therefore, as we're filled with the Spirit, we know things like the fruit of the Spirit can be evidenced and God is glorified. Earlier in Ephesians, we were told how Jews and Gentiles in chapter 2 are going to become one new body, have become one new body, and to walk in unity and so forth. And so he has corporate intentions uh, of, of bringing about God's glory and the, the, the new um, uh, church institute institution. And so these sins, therefore, uh, that are mentioned in chapter 4 may, are even related perhaps to communication and disunity in relationships. So this puts a hold when we sin. It puts a hold on what he's seeking to do. And I think that there's truth to that. And I think one thing else we want to realize, though, is there's a relationship emphasis in here as well. You see, personally, you were sealed and I were sealed until the day of redemption. And to be sealed means you are uh, connected to God. He's putting his approved stamp on upon us of, of identity. He's saying, you are mine. And there are the promises here of the Spirit. The Spirit is the first, pro- uh, the, the evidence of that. You are mine. But there's much more coming. So we note in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13 and 14, a little earlier, uh, we were told, In him, in Christ, you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and whom, also having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. So there we see redemption and the Spirit of God sealing us. And here, though, it mentions he's the guarantee of our inheritance. We are his children. There's relationship, and that inheritance will come to full fruition at our future redemption. There's a price that's been paid, and the security is there, and it is a guarantee. So we are not ultimately made for this physical body on this particular earth. There's something much more, something much better. And until the day of redemption, we are sealed for that. Now, um, Paul touches on both of these concepts uh, earlier in in the book, uh, in a different book, rather, in the book of Romans, in chapter uh, 8, verse 21 through 23, where he was talking about how the whole creation is groaning in light of the, the curse from the fall in Adam. And in Romans 8, 21, we read, because of the creation itself also, because rather the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty or freedom of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. 
Not only that, but we also who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves grown within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption and the redemption of our body. So again, we are children of God. We have been adopted, but there's another degree of this adoption, a future part of that, where we will be in the home that he's provided. We will be in his presence. Things will be even much better. And the redemption, which has started as we have life and regeneration, but it's the glorification that's coming future, it will be much better. But the first fruits are the spirit that's in us now as he's given us regeneration and life, and we now are in Christ and have status as a child of God. So we have adoption, we have inheritance, this terminology mixed with uh, redemption and the spirit and, and the uh, sealing. <clears throat> in fact, in Ephesians chapter 1, uh, again going back there, verses 5 through 7, we read that we have been predestined us to the adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace by which he made us accepted in the beloved. In him... We have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace. So if you are in Christ, you have the forgiveness of sins. But notice you also have redemption through his blood. And this has all been, well, God has predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself. So this all speaks of our relationship as sons, children, inheritance, and adoption, and redemption, this full uh, glory and glorification coming in the future, and the Holy Spirit is in you as a guarantee of what is coming because you are his child. And when you think of a child, you think of a family and a relationship, reminded of that in Galatians 4, 6, a key verse where uh, Paul says, and because you are sons, God has sent forth his spirit, the spirit rather, of his son, into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. So because you're a child of God, the Spirit of God, the Spirit is in you, crying out, Abba, Father, with an intense, intimate relationship. So we know that without faith, it is impossible to please God from Hebrews 11. And so in light of that, we know then that if we have sin, sin is not of faith. And sin does not please God. And instead, we know there's a separation. There's, there's actually a loss of fellowship, a disharmony that comes in with God, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, and us when we sin. And that's where this sadness, this grief, this sorrow comes. It describes uh, our sin and this, uh, this uh, disharmony from God's perspective. And there's an emotion, emotion that comes out of a love and a deep care and a desire for us, and how unbelief, our unbelief, must wound a loving heart. So the Spirit is grieved because he must put on pause his greater objectives of building one corporate body, the church, up for that day and what he's doing there corporately, but he's also grieved because he's saddened by the loss of fellowship and the joy and the relationship that he would have with you and I individually. And that's amazing. That's amazing that God has such a premium on this fellowship and this relationship and its practical outworkings and and we often, we realize, boy, we don't often see it the same way, do we? Well, we're back in Ephesians chapter 4. That's verse 30. Grieve not the Spirit. You are sealed by the Spirit until the day of redemption. Then verse 31 and 32. Instead, uh, we see that, not instead, but the next, uh, the next imperative is, Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. So let all this be put away from you. That's the main verb. Let be put away from you. And this is, we mentioned earlier, a passive imperative. That means 
how are we going to do this? It's passive. That means I'm the subject and I'm acted upon. So that's why the word let is used typically in a passive imperative. You let that be put away or taken away or taken out of the way. What are we to let out? Bitterness and these things. Let's just look at bitterness. Bitterness is this refusal to forgive. It's a spirit that says, I will not forgive. I can't let go of that. There's an anger and a harshness, a hostility that often is associated with the strong negativity. And it's highly personal. I mean, someone has really done something wrong to you. And we can think of bad things out there in this world, things that have gone wrong, tragedies. You know, the Titanic and how many people died there. I think about that. And I don't have any emotional response. It was before my time. I didn't know anyone. It's a nice story. It could make a good movie, especially if you turn it into a, you know, a hot love story. But when your spouse or child pushes your button in just the right way again, Oh, how we can get so irritated within, and an ever-increasing resentment builds up. This is a big deal, and it's personal. When someone you love and spend time with does that little thing, it can stir up resentments within you that become toxic. We might turn the news on and hear of horrible things, and we hardly even have a heartbeat toward it. So it's personal. This is really getting into the inner being of who we are. You know, this bitterness then builds up. Someone has done you wrong. Someone has violated your trust or has really truly done something wrong. We're not saying it didn't happen or it's not real, but it's a real serious issue. We can't let go of it. Think of yourself holding on to a bottle of water. Well, instead of water in that bottle, it's your anger and your resentment and your wrath. And, and you're replaying how it got in there. You're replaying the video over and over. Look what they did. Look at the, I can see the look in their eye. I can hear the tone in their voice. I hear those hurtful words or those actions again and again and again. Every time I'm the one who's been unfairly treated. Every time all the people who are watching this movie feel sorry for you, the star, the martyr. And God says, hey, that bottle, can I have it? Let me put it away. Let me have it. The Greek word is arrow. Let me take it away. No, they don't deserve it. They are not worthy of it. If I let you have it, oh, no. And we cling and we hang on. And it's really a form of reverse pride as we look good, we feel good in this movie, this, this cycle, this loop of video that we keep playing and playing. And it's kind of sick, isn't it? We, we like it. Why do we have this idea that I shouldn't have been harmed. This was not right. That should not have happened to me. It can happen to others, but not me. <laughs> we live on a planet where harm happens all the time. You know, children are murdered, horrible things in the headlines, and so forth. And why is it that we think that we should escape these kinds of things? It's a mammoth overstatement of our own importance and a lack of sensitivity to everyone else on the planet. You know, stuff happens. Happens over there, over here, over to them, and so forth, but it shouldn't happen to me. No, God never guaranteed that stuff won't happen in our life, friends. But he says, I'm always there. I'm present. I am not. You are not alone. He can heal. He can give wisdom. He can empower many things as we walk through life with him, as he can even make things, all things work together for good. But somehow we just think, no, it's not because big things happen to me or some, you know, some big event, but maybe it's just because someone was critical of you. And we can really be sensitive to that, right? Someone's critical. Of, but again, if you feel compelled to respond every time you're criticized, it reveals just how much you've built your identity on being right. And you know, someone once said, the only thing better than being right is the feeling of being wrong. 
So verse 32 says now we have all this hard anger and feelings and bitterness and wrath and it can be really raw and real and we struggle with it. And he says now instead, verse 32, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God and Christ forgave you. I'll replace that with softness of heart, gentleness, just the opposite. And you're like, what? How? Well, here's the glue behind it all. Even as God and Christ forgave you. The mold was broken. The chain reaction was broken. Someone made the first move. God forgave guilty, undeserving sinners just like you and me. And he says that we have forgiveness. God for, uh, forgave us in Christ, even as God in Christ forgave us. What else is in Christ? Well, Ephesians 1.13 reminds us we've been blessed with all spiritual blessings in Christ. Ephesians 1.6 tells us we've been accepted in the Beloved. We're accepted in Christ. Ephesians 1.11, we've obtained an inheritance, a future glory in Christ. And Ephesians 2.7, he reminds us in the ages to come, God will show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us in Christ. So who's the focus here? The eyes are off you and the eyes are off the offense and the eyes are off the offender and the eyes are on God, Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit. How they are kind to you, exceeding kindness, Ephesians 2.7. They are tender-hearted toward you as the, was the love that's been expressed and shown and demonstrated toward us. Even the Spirit makes groans of intercession when we don't know what to say. Even Jesus in 1 John 2.1 is our advocate. God loves us with an eternal love. So God has forgiven us, provided everything necessary for us to be free of our sin and our guilt and our shame. That's the power of love. God loves, God moves, God forgives. And let that encourage you, friends, again and again and be refreshed in that. Because that same love is now that uh, something for you and I to respond to. I like how Martin Luther King once said, he said, he who has, is devoid of the power to forgive is devoid of the power to love. But that's not us. We have the power to love. As 1 John 4.19 says, we love him because he first loved us. And we know how to respond when someone is gracious and good to us. So we can choose then to run into that love, God's love for us, and relish that love and just be so joyful of the forgiveness and the goodness he treats us in. And you just watch slowly how that love then begins to transform our very being. That's why chapter 5, verse 1 and 2, just quickly going on after Ephesians 4.32, he says, Therefore, be imitators of God as dear children, and walk in love as Christ also has loved us and given himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. Therefore, as you've been forgiven by God in Christ, therefore imitate him who has loved you and gave himself for you and walk in love. You know, every story has a hero. So who is this hero of your story? See, if you stay in verse 31 in that bitterness, then you become the hero in your martyrdom. And you're the object of much sympathy. And you're the hero. But your hero is really Jesus Christ, the one who unconditionally loves you and has set you free from sin and shame. Who's to be the object of adoration here? <laughs> it's obvious, isn't it? The Lord. So how? How can I ever forgive? How can I have this be taken away? Remember, these are passive imperatives. 
That means God will do it, friends. That's his job. It's his working. He will take it away, and he will bring in the replacement, tenderness, and so forth. He can do that, and he will do it, and you're given an out. This isn't something natural. We don't produce this within ourselves. We could not do that. Our hurt is too real. The rawness, our sorrow, our pain, it's obvious. But you know, the Christian life is always an active participation in our part mentally and a divine production. God produces and produces the very fruit of the Spirit through us. So how do we participate? Actively in our minds, eyes on him, renewal of our mind on his love, his grace, his goodness. Refreshing your thinking with something so much greater than above and beyond you. And abide in that love. And watch how other things grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. There is more in the Lord Jesus and the Father and the Spirit in heaven to give us rest and peace and joy than in the whole universe to disquiet trouble or grieve. So grieve not the Spirit was the first of the two uh, imperatives. Why? Because of the relationship and the intensity attachment we have with the Spirit in Christ, looking forward to a redemption and where our adoption and our status and inheritance and all the things coming with being a child come to fruition. So that's like this difference. One, we could be indifferent to sin. I don't care if I sin. I don't care that I do that. Or we could be have an awareness of the profound love demonstrated to us which would be like, wow, boy, the Lord really loves me. It's feelings of shame. I really should respond. So now I'm saying I really shouldn't do that. To you're compelled by love, and you're engaged in this love, and you're returning and responding love back, and instead you'd say, why would I do that? So we could be thinking of sin, grieving the Spirit. We could be indifferent. I don't care that I do that. We could be starting to be aware of His love for us and what we have in Him. I really shouldn't do that. Or we could be responding, being compelled by his love and saying, why would I do that? And if you have a spouse, which one would you want your spouse to say? To be, you know, some rotten thing toward you. They'd want him to say, I don't care I did that? No. How about I really shouldn't do that? They're really nice to me and, you know, but I, I kind of want to, but I really shouldn't do that? Well, that's better, but how about I am compelled by my love for them and our intimacy and closeness. Why would I do that? Grieve not the Spirit. Secondly, we saw, let the bitterness and resentment we have in us to be put away from us. God can take it and replace it with love. And here's another great exchange. What an exchange. You know, the first one is at Calvary when we have sin and death, and he dies for us and gives us his life and his righteousness. God made him who knew no sin, 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, that he was to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And so God would see you right now in the righteousness of God if you have believed on Christ. And that's the first exchange, our sin for his life and his righteousness. And the second exchange, another one here, not, is right here. Our hard-fought hatred, bitterness, and wrath that's enslaving us can be exchanged internally for softness, tenderness, and forgiveness, working itself outward through us that God does. Are you up for that? Let's close with Psalm 34, 8, a verse that says, 37.4, rather, I'm sorry, Psalm 37.4, Delight yourself also in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Put your eyes on him, and watch how he changes the internal desires of your heart. 
Let's pray. Father, Lord, we thank you that we can be motivated and delight ourselves in you by allowing your truth to renew and refresh our minds and to be impressed again at how we see what you value, what you place, the value you place on our relationship with you and how that lack of fellowship when we sin causes you even to grieve. May it cause us to grieve and may we have a desire to be compelled by the love for you to run to you and have even you change our desires. Thank you how we can have righteousness so freely in Christ through just faith in him. We trust all here would have believed and would put their confidence in Christ and his work for them and his resurrection and receive the gift of life. And thank you how we can even have all of our bitternesses and hatreds exchanged. Your tenderness and love for others can flood us instead. May that be the way we want to live. And so we thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. And, you know, we would love to hear from you. You can email any comments or questions and just email us at coolhandgrace at gmail.com. We also can email you the devotional questions should you want those as well. So until next time, remember, where the Spirit of God is, there is always hope.